Hi. We're here this morning because of the faithfulness and generosity of others long before. I'm at our San Jose campus, which is one of the five Menlo communities here on the peninsula that's active because so many of you grew in your faith over the years and you were willing to stretch toward a different future that God had planned for all of us. It, it reminds me, my, uh, my first church right out of school was as an assistant pastor at a church in Chicago. And I'll never forget my first November there. This uh, short, old man, must have been 70 years old, came up and, and about 5'4", five, 5'3", five, he was so short that when he got into the pulpit, he had to step on a little stool so that he could see over. And you could hear him coming because he had these big steel braces. His name was John Craddock. He'd been born in Glasgow, Scotland. Had polio as a baby and was brought to this country. Ended up as a, a vice president of a huge firm. But never lost those roots. And John would say, I've come to thee to talk to you about money. Money. You've got it, and we want it. And as people laughed, I sat there, and I learned that there were a lot of different ways to talk about money and faith. And I'd like to learn another one of those today with you. Let's pray. King Jesus, I pray that this morning you would enliven the words out of your word and take the words from my mouth and make them pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. The word for the month is satisfied. And I say that because we live in a dissatisfied culture. Sometimes the best way that people express their emotions is, is through music. And that's, that's probably why the two most powerful groups, the two most popular groups of the last 50 or 60 years, both talked about contentment or satisfaction. You probably could help me finish the first sentence of their most popular song. The first one started out, I don't care too much for money, money can't buy me. You got it. Or if you were fans of the other big group, you would jump up and down and sing, I can't get no right. You know, it's, it's scary that there are enough of you out there old enough to know those words. But it's interesting to know that, that the Stones who did I Can't Get No Satisfaction had career earnings of between a billion and two billion dollars. But they said they couldn't get satisfaction through their money. And when the Beatles recorded Money Can't Buy Me Love, their career earnings were between two and a half and six and a half billion dollars. But just like me, they came to learn that it's hard to get satisfaction in a culture that talks about love but lives about money. So I want us to talk this month about discovering satisfaction, discovering contentment in a culture of consumption. So 
So let's define what contentment might look like. I believe it's a biblical word. Contentment is the cultivation of a satisfied heart. Contentment is the practice, we don't always get it right, but it's the practice of being alive to God's presence and fully present to other people, regardless of our circumstances or our material wealth. That definition of contentment is from the book by Jeff Mannion called Satisfied. It's a book, I I don't want to say it should be on every bookshelf in the peninsula, because I want you to read it, Satisfied by Mannion. Contentment is the cultivation of a satisfied heart. My goal this month is to provide biblical direction for living a deep spiritual life in a shallow materialistic world deep instead of shallow, and that sense of spirit-filled and eternal rather than just my circumstances and what I can see. How does that happen? I think it starts because there's a longing in the human heart for contentment. The Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You brought nothing into the world, you'll take nothing out of it. So if we have just food and clothing, we'll be content. But will we? Will we really? Most of us are not content. And most of us aren't content because there's some secret that we're missing. The Apostle Paul, in another of his letters, writing again from jail, says to the church in Philippi, I've experienced great need and great abundance. And in every circumstances, I have learned the secret of contentment. There's a secret to being content. This morning, are you content? Do you have that secret? Whether you're satisfied or hungry, whether you've got a lot or nothing, the apostle says, I'm able to endure all things through the one who gives me strength. That's the secret of contentment. Now, I got to tell you, I, I don't think that many of you are greedy SOBs, sons of Baptists. I don't think that's you today. Many of you would say, I'm not greedy, and most of you would say, I'm not rich. But you can't know how content you are with what you have until you know what you have. So you have to discern why are you making three times as much as you were years ago and you still feel squeezed? When was the last time you did an inventory of all the things and all the stuff that you have? We don't do it often because few of us really want to know. But after you've done your inventory of things and your inventory of your satisfaction level, consider this. Contentedness and satisfaction come when we learn to face outward. When we get together and we serve others, it takes the spotlight off of me and mine, and God starts to teach us life that is really life, of service and seeing the joy on other people's faces. It's not a natural thing. Our culture will drag you the other way. You have to, as the Apostle Paul says, train your heart. Contentment is the cultivation of a heart. We train ourselves to go against the flow. You have to learn the secret. 
I was, uh, I was taught in seminary that I should look at the last thing that people say in the Bible because last words are lasting words. The last communication that we know of between the Apostle Paul and his protege Timothy is here. Paul has just said that people who want to get rich fall into a trap, and then in the last chapter, Paul says, but you, man of God, run away from all this. Pursue, run after righteousness and godliness, faith and love. Run after endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Contentment will never be found on autopilot because the drift of the human heart is always backwards, always downward, always inward. Paul tells young Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Do not settle for the sale at Macy's. Take hold of life that lasts forever. And Paul goes on, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, Tell them to put their hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the age to come, so that they may take hold of what? They may take hold of the life that is really life truly life. There's that phrase again. Paul wants us to take hold of the life that is really life, contented, satisfied. Now, if I were to ask most of you, if you feel like you're living the life that is really life today, how many of you are contented or satisfied people more than 60% of the time? I'm, I'm not going to do that, but it'd really be interesting if you could tell the truth. I also believe that people who do not cultivate contented hearts create massive damage in their wake. Paul says some people get eager for money and they wander from the faith. They don't necessarily wander away from church, but they wander from the faith and they've pierced themselves with grief and they do not suffer alone. I have the great privilege for now of being one of your pastors. And if you're a visitor today, welcome. Boy, you're wondering, aren't you? That means I'm privileged to be a pastor in this community on one of the richest spits of land in the history of planet Earth. And I have to tell you, this is a life and death issue. You live in a community that is increasingly financially wealthy and increasingly spiritually bankrupt. And you're in danger, whether you're in these walls this morning, or you're out there online of that same fate. The direction, or I'm sorry, the danger comes in two different directions. The Apostle Paul points to the idea that it's not money that's the problem. It isn't having nice things that the problem. It's not great experiences that are the problem. The problem is what I would call undiscipled wealth. Undiscipled wealth are resources that I have not deliberately and repeatedly put at the foot of the cross. It's not part of my life that's being discipled. In, in the old days, 
when tribes of Vikings became Christians, they would walk into the water to be baptized, and it would go all the way over their heads, but the warriors would hold their swords above the water so they wouldn't be baptized. I feel like a lot of us walk into the waters to be baptized, and our wallet stays above the water. There are great dangers to undiscipled wealth. The first of those dangers that Paul talks about is that people with means can become arrogant. Now, arrogant doesn't seem like the right word because they don't look all puffed up. But what we in the West do have is an arrogance that comes out this way. You've worked hard for what you have. You're not ashamed of it. You worked hard. You're not boasting about it, but there's this constant, subtle comparison to what everybody else has. It's, it's a ranking. You're doing worse than her, but better than him. And we live our lives that way, consciously or not, because advertisers from your cradle have made sure of it. It's a form of arrogance. It shows up with your kids or your friends' kids. We all think we have the best and the brightest and the neatest kids in the world. Instead, what you and I have are kids that were born on third base. We have kids who are wonderful and talented and lovable. I love these kids, but the kids in East Palo Alto are just as smart, just as talented, just as loved by God. And they're still trying to get out of the batter's box because they weren't born on third base. When we say we're not so great, but we're doing better than the others, that's a root of spiritual arrogance. The second danger about undiscipled money is that because of our relative affluence, and if you can hear my voice, you are relatively affluent, we've misplaced our hope. Many of you put your hope not so much in things, that's, you're way too sophisticated for that. You put your hope, your trust in the hope that security provides. You have a retirement plan. You have a savings plan. You buy a house, not just because it's a nice house, but for its resale value. You save so the kids can go to the right school. You do all of this hoping for a sense of security. It is good to save. It's not bad. What's dangerous about undis undiscipled saving is that rich people have a harder time trusting Jesus than people who have nothing else to trust. That sounds judgmental, but that's Jesus. He knows they don't have anything. They know they're bankrupt without Jesus. Paul's not the messenger of the God of the Grinch. God is not a Grinch. As a matter of fact, in verse 17, Paul makes sure we understand why this is important because God wants you to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God doesn't want you to give it all away. God doesn't want you to go without food. God wants you to see that what he has given you is a gift and enjoy it. Like a three-year-old ripping apart the box. God's given us everything we need for our enjoyment. It's like the psalmist who declares that God loves bringing food to the earth, who gives wine to gladden the heart. God gives oil to make our faces shine and bread to sustain the heart. In these simple, life-giving ways, God says, enjoy this. Um, it was the middle of the winter. I couldn't sleep. It was just one of those nights. And... Uh, 
I got up about three o'clock and I staggered downstairs into the kitchen and I sat down and I watched the snow on the ground of the backyard. Fires going in the fireplace. About 15 minutes into it, I swear, I swear I just felt like I heard this presence say, enjoy this. Remember this. I want you to enjoy this. And I felt thankful to God. All the other stuff I could still worry about tomorrow, but in that moment, as I looked into the fire, I felt God saying, enjoy this. The next day, my challenge was not to enjoy. My, my challenge, rather, was how do I fall deeper in love with God who gives me that to enjoy and not fall in love with that experience? Or with my backyard or my deck furniture, not fall in love with an updated kitchen fireplace. Not take that beautiful snowy night view for granted. There's the whispered voice of the God that wants to say to you, if you'll ever stop long enough, enjoy this. Enjoy the coo of that little baby. That's, that's life. That's the gift of God. And when I finally do say, thank you, God, God repeats, enjoy this. And then God says, why don't you share this? Share this with somebody else. Because sharing the blessing of God is at the core of a satisfied life. If you want to be satisfied, if you want to be content, be generous now. Being generous is contagious. The discipline of giving and giving away frees my heart from I just need one more experience by that fireplace. I just need one more ski run. I, I just need one more... It frees us out of more and shows us what to be thankful for now when we give. I want you to have that, to be satisfied, contented, generous people. In fact, that's a command from the God who made you, that you should act decisively and you should act immediately to become a more decisive person, a more generous person. If you do that, Starting today, wherever you are, if you become a more generous person, God's reward will be to make you more contented, more satisfied. Even as I say that, I can sense the resistance because I feel it inside myself. Let me get the first part of it out of the way, okay? The first response for people sitting in churches hearing this about faith and money is often, I knew it. I knew it. They're finally getting around to it. They're talking about money. The church just wants my money. We deliberately, as a church leadership, we deliberately place this series in the place of where the stewardship series usually goes. We don't want people giving to this church. Well, we really would love to have you give, but we don't want to have you give for the reason that we need your money. This must be about you and Jesus. The second reason people resist becoming more generous is that when they're prompted by God to pursue generosity, good-hearted Christians rarely say no. You don't say no. Instead of saying no, what you say is later. When I can give more. When you resist giving, you aren't saying no, you're saying later. One of the reasons that's lethal is because you really mean it. 
You really think that later will happen, and a lot of times it does not. Don't fall victim to the deception of the well-intentioned delay, because life will pass you by. Even if right now you have written into your will that you'll give a third of all of your money to the poor, that's great, but you don't get to see that. It won't make you content or satisfied now. The problem I have with those legacy gazillion dollar gifts is that so often what we really need is more examples of ordinary people who give now. Laura, uh, Laura and I had dinner with uh, a young family in our church who had just become elders. And as usual, we're talking about kids, their kids. Uh, they had uh, three little Ziploc bags full of change on their kitchen. Uh, they have three young kids. They're trying to teach these kids how to share, how to save, and how to spend. You've certainly heard that before, right? You share first, then you save, then you spend with joy. They give their kids allowance in those three bags. And they said it had been a while since they talked about what the share process was. So the kids brought their bags into the kitchen and they laid them out. They said, how much you got? Where should we give at the end of the year out of your share bag? Well, they, they were thoughtful, elder, Presbyterian types. And, and these young parents said, oh, guys, you know what we should do? We should give to Opportunity International. It's a place at our church where you create wealth by giving loans to people, and that creates jobs, and they, they create an economy. It's so neat. And the kids go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then the kids saw pictures of children from World Vision. And that's where their hearts went. Especially this picture of a, of a young girl in the verse below it that, that says, I know the Lord secures justice for the poor. The parents read that in the card and they said, World Vision is helping kids be rescued from human trafficking. And the kids go, what's What's trafficking? Well, that's when somebody either steals you from your mommy and daddy or they buy you from mom and dad because you're so poor, your parents are so poor, they can't help it, and then bad things happen to you. And and the girl said, we want to do that. We want to rescue one of those trafficked kids. And the kids pooled their money and gave it to World Vision. And and World Vision, of course, sent back a, a fun little lighted pen that it remind them. And a couple months later, the oldest daughter, May, came into her mom's room with her spend bag. Not the save bag and not the share bag, but the spend bag and said, Mom, what's trafficking really? Does it have something to do with that sex thing? And her mom said, honey, it's, it's much more about somebody being taken away from the love of their mommy and dad and, and being forced to do bad things. And World Vision helps rescue them. I wrote this down in my journal so that I would never forget. Her daughter offered mom the rest of her spend bag and says, how much will it take to save another little girl? Do not wait to be completely satisfied. Do not wait to be content. The center of biblical contentment is to follow God's clear direction about being generous, letting it flow out of your hands. If you don't, it'll stunt growth in every other aspect of following Jesus. The center of biblical generosity is the belief 
that God provides everything you really need for right now. And with gratitude for what God provides and confidence that God is not going to die, we open our hands and we share. You know, there's a, there's a third reason people resist generosity. It's not because they're greedy and arrogant. It's, it's not because they're going to give later. They don't give more because they're afraid. It's not that you're arrogant. It's that you're afraid you're going to run out of stuff. I'd give more, but what if I give it away and then I lose my job and there's not enough? That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says, some people who want to get rich, that is, who want to get secure, become arrogant. Others want to get rich and put their false hope in money. It will not keep them secure. It will not keep you secure. The intended result of God's gift to you is not that you amass wealth, not that you accumulate more stuff, not that you have even better experiences, but that as you grow, you will grow in goodness and you will grow in generosity. That's your legacy. Not a bigger house, not a stronger resume, not getting your kids into the best school, not being popular. This is your legacy. What have you done with God, with what God has given you now? Little May showed us that that can start at age seven. But Randy and Judy showed us that it's never too late. Randy and Judy Johnson went with us on a trip to Africa to, to celebrate retirement. They were already in their 70s. She was still working. And they, they bumped into this 10-year-old boy man named Michael. He had sucked up his courage and came up to them and said, I want to be a doctor, but I need to go to school. And Randy and Judy, out of their retirement, started giving $500 a year so that young Michael could get into that school. He goes all the way through school, and 10 years later, he says, I still want to be a doctor. And he gets into medical school, a miracle. And they started giving him $1,200 a year. Their Social Security went up, so they gave more. These people have gone from their 70s into their 80s, and their retirement income is fixed, and they're given $1,200 a year. Young Michael says, I want to become the best doctor in Uganda and go back home. Randy and Judy were talking to us one day. They said, this is so great. He's doing super. He's going to be a doctor. You know, we told him at the very beginning that if he ever graduated from medical school, we'd fly him back here. You don't think he remembers that, do you? And they showed us his picture. Because it's never too late. It's never too early. God is saying, enjoy this, share this, become satisfied. I believe God has something special for you today, wherever you are. I think you ought to tell somebody today, tell somebody, what's my next step? What's your next step to becoming a more generous person to become contented? to responding as a disciple of Jesus? Is it to ask your money advisor, is there any way I could be more generous? Is it to get one of those budget apps so you'll know where your money goes and you'll have a little more margin? Is it, is it maybe to talk to, a, you, uh, to talk to a friend that you admire? How did you start to give like that? But at the very least, today, 
it ought to be to find something to give to. Give something now. Let God bless you with contentment and satisfaction so you can share it with others. You'll become satisfied. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said once that we should, um, we should comfort the afflicted and we should afflict the comfortable. But I live my whole life wanting to get more comfortable. I pray that you will make me and my friends get on the road to contentment and satisfaction that it will result in more generous hearts not later, but now. In your great name and because of your great love. Amen.